Well, you guys can take your seats and open your Bibles if you have them to that passage our friend Steve just read. We are back in Ephesians, looking at Ephesians 1, verses uh, 3 through 14. Um, jumping back into Ephesians after a little bit of a uh, false alarm. Maybe you know that uh, Saturday night we thought Stephanie was going into labor, uh, but it ended up being about 30 hours of contractions and being sent home. So uh, the baby could still come at any moment. So um, if, for whatever reason, Stephanie's water breaks right now, uh, we'll just end with some songs. So, um, But thank you, Will, for preaching last week on short notice. Uh, really appreciate the message. And Nathan is now warming up in the pen, so uh, whenever, the, whenever the writing needs to come in, uh, Nathan will be on call. We're looking at a beautiful passage this morning, uh, a passage that I could probably give a whole series on. So Will made the joke last week in his sermon that uh, I preached an hour and 20 minutes, which isn't technically correct. The recording itself was an hour and 20 minutes. My sermon was a little bit shorter than that. So, uh, but, <laughs> minus one fair. What I'm saying is, we might get dangerously close to that. No, I'm just joking. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, 4, 14. Uh, so I, I can't, although I might want to, I can't cover everything that's covered in this passage. Uh, that's, that's a temptation that I have. That's a longing that I have. But I also know that you guys like to eat lunch. Um, so what I, would, what I would encourage you is, um, if you have questions about the text this morning, would like uh, deeper study in some of the topics that are in here, I would encourage you to purchase a commentary. In fact, uh, there's a great commentary out there that was recommended to me called Ephesians for You by a guy named Richard Koken. That's how I'm going to say his name. I don't know if that's correct pronunciation, but that's how I'm going to say it. Um, written particularly for those who... Uh, maybe aren't seminary students, are pastors, very uh, easy to highly recommend that commentary, buying it and going through it. Um, this is something at, at, at the Mountain Church as we continue to go through books that I would encourage you to do as we start new series. So if, as we start a series through Jonah or a series through Galatians, uh, I think it would be beneficial to get a commentary and study the passage that we are studying through throughout the week so that you can get more out of it um, and really invest into the passage. Does that make sense? Okay. So this passage that we're uh, going over today, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, uh, would be a typical type of Jewish prayer. Um, in Paul's day, that's kind of the, the beautiful, the eloquence of, of the language used here. It would be very similar to a prayer. And I, I liken this passage to uh, kind of a beautiful canvas, our beautiful... Uh, scenic view. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Will and I were running an errand in Federal Way, and we came down uh, First Avenue to Marine View Drive down on Redondo. Uh, and many of you guys have taken that drive before. You come down the hill, and you're kind of right on the water, and you see the water, you see the mountains, you see Vashon, and it's just beautiful. And you could really, if you wanted to, kind of sit there for a while and kind of soak it all in. And that's something that I think we could do with this passage. This is a passage that if you're new to Bible memorization, uh, if you're new to how do I pray, uh, what are some things that I should say, uh, this would be a passage that I would encourage you to dive into. Uh, if you've never memorized a passage before, this is a great one to start with. Uh, it's so rich. Probably one of my favorite, 
passages in the whole Bible, this one and, and maybe Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10. Uh, the, Paul jumps right in by saying in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, in our English Bibles, we have commas and we have periods throughout this whole section. And interestingly enough, in the Greek, this is all 3 through 14 is one sentence. Talk about a run-on, right? <laughs> you're an English teacher, you're a, a teacher, this might make you wince or cringe. Uh, this is something that I like to use when Stephanie is editing, you know, some of my material or uh, editing a sermon. It's like, there's a lot of run-ons in here, Daniel. I said, well, you know, run-ons are biblical, uh, right? You can use that. <laughs> blessed be the God and Father. Now, this word blessed means praiseworthy. Gets at the idea that God is deserving of praise. Verbal praise. God is to be praised above all things. He deserves to be praised with our thoughts, with our emotions, with our words. This is why as Christians we sing. We love to praise God. We, we also want to praise God with our thoughts. We also want to praise God with our prayers. And I was thinking through this, this passage, what Paul wrote here and how it was a type of prayer, it really convicted me on how much I praise God in my prayers. And I would encourage you to think through, how do you pray? Or what were some of the prayers that you prayed to God this week? More often than not, my prayers look like, God, I would like this, give me this, give me this, give me this. A lot of requests. How much in, in our prayers do we praise God? God, you are so good. You are supreme. You are above all things. There is nothing like you. These are some, some praises that we can say to God in our prayers. I don't know about you, but uh, I need to be praising God often to remind me of who really deserves the praise. I'm such a natural person. I'm so quick to praise myself or praise other people without ultimately praising God. I'm selfish. I have selfish thoughts. And I need to saturate myself in, in the truth of God's word. I need to saturate myself in prayers like this one. I need to saturate myself in God's word being sung, our scripture being sung, or our songs of praise to God. Something that I've been doing lately that has really helped throughout the week is I, I don't really listen to anything other than uh, someone reading God's word or uh, like praise music. And it really, like, it really makes a difference in my mood, in my thoughts, in my attitudes, in my actions. Uh, listening to the scriptures, saturating myself in God's word and praising God for who he is and what he has done. Paul writes that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And I think that's interesting because at first, we can kind of read past that without realizing that Paul is writing actually in the past tense. Like we've already been blessed. We don't have to earn God's blessing. We don't have to work for it. Kind of the, 
the way maybe you might think if you were a religious person or someone, if you were a moralistic person or a uh, legalistic type person, well, I need to work hard. I need to somehow earn God's blessing. And the gospel is, I've already been blessed in Christ. We think about that. What are we striving towards? And I love what Paul writes. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with some spiritual blessings. I love that. Does Paul say some spiritual blessings? No. No. <laughs> He's given us a few, a small batch. Paul doesn't say, Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed some in Christ with every spiritual blessing. says, everyone is blessed with every spiritual blessing. Already happened. I lost my wallet sometime uh, last night or this morning. I can't find it. And it got me thinking about, man, I really want to find my wallet. I'm thinking about, do I need to cancel my credit cards? You know, where is it? This kind of sense of security that I have carrying around my wallet, my riches that are in these little cards in a leather flap that has been stitched together. I think it even just now reminded me, I have all that I need in Christ. I'm so rich. Honestly, what do we think about that? Every spiritual blessing already been given. This spiritual blessing would mean a, a present, a gift, a sign of kindness to promote flourishing, to promote livelihood that has been given to us in Christ. And that's important to remember there. Because sometimes you might hear a, a pastor get up, you might see a pastor on the television and you say, you might hear him say, how many of you want to be blessed, right? You ever seen these guys, heard of these guys? Everyone in the crowd kind of like, you know, me, me, me. He says, well, if you just send $10 to this number that'll appear on your screen, right? <laughs> or send $100 or send $1,000, then Christ will just rain down blessing upon you. So God wants to bless you, so just do this. Is that what Paul, does that line up with the scriptures? God does want to bless you. He really does. And he already has in Christ. With spiritual blessings. It doesn't say physical. It says spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And this is where, again, too, we need to shift our thinking in accordance to the scriptures. When we think of blessing, we might think of physical, material things. Things that we think will benefit us. More money, more clothes, more cars, more whatever. These are blessings. That's, that's such a shallow view of, of blessing. It'd be like um, if I kind of let Addison be in charge of her life. If Addison chose what she thought was best for her, what she wanted, it would be complete disaster. What would happen is she would just have applesauce pouches. That's all she, if she, it was just up to her, that's what she would want. Maybe some goldfish. She would want to go downstairs and watch TV all day. She loves this uh, Nickelodeon show, Bubble Guppies. Parents, you ever, yeah, oh man. She would watch that all day. 
She would have no sort of uh, nutritious diet where she needs all the vitamins and proteins. She would kind of just turn into a vegetable on a couch. She wouldn't be active as she, she needs to grow. And I think sometimes we can be just like Addison, right? We think we know what's best for us and we want what will seemingly bring us blessing. But Christ calls us to something so much deeper, something that maybe we can't see, spiritual blessings and heavenly places. A guy named Warren Wearsby says it like this. The fact that Paul is writing about wealth and blessing would be significant to his readers because Ephesus was considered the bank of Asia. One of the seven wonders of the world, the great temple of Diana was in Ephesus and was not only the center of idolatrous worship, but also a depository for wealth. Some of the greatest art treasures of the ancient world were housed in the magnificent building, but in the letter, Paul will compare the churches of Christ to a temple and will explain the great wealth that Christ has in his church. Paul has already used the word riches. You may want to check, highlight, underline financial words such as inheritance, fullness, filled. Paul is saying we have all that we need in the riches of Christ. All the riches that you might think that there are in Ephesus, you know, these great temples, these great buildings, the, the wealth that was there, but Christ is so much greater. Similar to you, I think you could write to us today. You know, you're America, very wealthy, rich nation. Seattle, very, you know, influential, affluent place to live. Christ, <laughs> you have more riches than you need in Christ. Not in the things of this world, not in Job or Seattle. This is why I think Paul prays just in the passage uh, later in Ephesians 1, 16 through 19, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in his saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe according to the working in his might. So you see what Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. Not... God, give them more blessing, but God, open their eyes that they may realize how blessed they are. Do we see that? Do we pray that? This should hopefully change the way that we pray. From God, give me more blessing, to God, open my eyes to see how much I am blessed in you. These heavenly realms that Paul speaks of, the heavenly places, the spiritual aspect, does not just mean the futuristic realities, but the spiritual realities. This is the hope of, that we have as Christians, not in the flesh and blood, but in the spiritual dimension that Christ has blessed us with. So where I want to go this morning is, is kind of outlining what Paul prays and the blessings that he says in this passage with kind of three primary things that I think uh, he, he's getting at in spiritual blessings. Three, three main points, three main uh, areas of spiritual blessing that I've outlined in, uh, in our outline this morning. Number one, seemingly the first blessing that Paul gets at, that we have been given in Christ, is that we are chosen. All those in Christ have been chosen. So that when Paul writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he... For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Right? If we're honest, I think some of us would like to read it like that. 
Why does that word have to be in there? Predestined. What does that word mean? The P word, right? Historically, this word has created a lot of division. Uh, There's a lot of confusion, misunderstanding. So what I'm going to do in my short sermon is answer all of your questions and give you the correct understanding of the word. The biblical one, right? Uh, Let's talk about that for a while, shall we? Predestination. Now, I know uh, that there are a lot of different thoughts, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different uh, interpretations or understandings of what this word means, maybe what you've been taught. And what I'm hoping to do this morning is teach it in a way that makes you love it. That's my hope, that we would cherish this doctrine. Hoping to, to a little bit, briefly, talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean. And why I think Paul chooses to include it here. So when we come through our scriptures and we see this word, it's, it's there, right? We have to do something with it. We can't ignore it. We can't pretend like it's not there. We can't uh, get our Sharpie out and kind of mark a line through our Bibles and just pretend it's not there. It's there, predestined. What do we do with it? There might be some in this room that love this word. They, they cherish this word. There might be some that cringe at that word. That makes me uncomfortable. What does that mean? Predestined. Well, in the Greek, it means predestined. Okay? So we just have to clarify there. Predetermined. Well, there's not some sort of secret loophole in the Greek. Well, it doesn't really mean predetermined. It does. So, predetermined what? How? Why? How many of you would say you grew up in a church where this was taught? Two, three, four? Okay. So this will hopefully be the introduction of, of this kind of talk about I can't cover all of it, of course. But um, I just wanted to briefly cover kind of my understanding of how it's morphed throughout the years and, and what I think, why I think it's in the Bible and why I think we can love it and cherish it and, and actually uh, leads us to, to greater understanding of God's grace and worship of God. Uh, the tendency in my heart when I first read this word, predestined, uh, was to avoid it. It really made me uncomfortable, honestly. Uh, I tried to explain it away in a way that made sense to me. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've heard a pastor do that. Uh, I kind of grew up never really understanding or hearing this word being talked about in church. And hearing this word, I think, can bring up a lot of uh, negative uh, connotations or maybe even negative experiences with someone who really believed this and kind of championed this or was all about this. They might have been someone who was really arrogant. They might have been someone who was really lazy. They might have been someone who didn't really care about humility or holiness. So we kind of, we don't want to associate with them. They believe in this and I don't want to be a part of that. So I'm not going to believe in it. I've met and talked with many people that claim, well, I know the Bible uses that word, but I don't want to hold to that same interpretation as others, maybe those, those lazy, arrogant Calvinists, those Reformed people. Because those guys are some of the most unholy, lazy, prideful people I've ever met. Maybe when you hear that word, you think, uh, you think of that too, or maybe you think, well, that means God is like a puppeteer where his puppets were some sort of like robots. 
or God is not un, God is not loving. This doctrine seems to diminish prayer and evangelism and and holiness. And like I said before, although I think there's a lot of different opinions or misconceived notions of what this means, I'm going to give you the correct understanding. And I say that uh, arrogantly, jokingly, but I, I'm going to give you my interpretation of this, knowing that there are guys that I love and respect that hold to this differently, uh, that see this differently than I do, but I'm going to give you how I hold to this doctrine and why I hold to it and why I think as a church we should. Predestined, determined beforehand. This does not mean that, like some have tried to explain or I tried to explain earlier on, that... Um, God has some sort of linear view of time. He sees everyone who's going to choose him. And then based on who chooses him, he chooses those people. Have you ever heard that explanation? Well, that's what predestination means. It doesn't really mean predetermined. But based on what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we can't hold to that understanding, I don't think. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is a gift not a result of work so that no one can boast. Your coming to Christ, your being chosen in God is ultimately because of God. I don't think there's anything, anything in my salvation, anything in, in uh, my smartness, my intellectual, my maybe I was holier or more pure than those sinners, so I knew how to choose God or not. It was all God's grace. I think in our Western American individualistic minds, that can really make us uncomfortable. Because a lot of what we are sold in ads, in marketing, in commercials, is it's all about you, right? We even have slogans of restaurants that say, have it your way. Keith's commercials are constantly feeding us a lot. Everything revolves around us. You, you want something, like Amazon now, the same day delivery. You want something, you get it then. You want to watch a movie, you can stream it instantaneously on your phone. You want some sort of information, you pull up your phone in seconds, it's right there. There's not a lot of ads that are maybe God-word, God-honoring, right? Still waiting for that commercial on TV to show the, the woman modestly clothed. You know, come to uh, 1 Timothy 2.9, attire. We're going to clothe you in modesty. Still waiting to see that one. Still waiting to see the commercial talking about, uh, you know, the disclaimer on medicine of, you know, this, this will help. This will maybe even last to a longer life, but really it doesn't matter because God, when God wants you, he's going to take you. Still waiting to hear that one. Still waiting to see the one that talking about the aging cream. We're, you're going to age and you're going to die. Just get over it. I think the idea of predestination can make us uncomfortable because it amuses, removes the focus from self to God. It removes the focus of what God ultimately cares about is my choice 
to what God ultimately cares about is his glory and, and who he is. So anytime we come across something in the scriptures that makes us uncomfortable, we need to dive deeper into them. And we need to, as best as we can, try to remove uh, our preconceived notions, remove what we might think uh, God's word says, so that we don't read what we want into the text. We want to get meaning out of the text, not put meaning into it. And this is our job as students of the word, get meaning out of the text. What does the text mean? Because what can happen sometimes is we have a thought of God, we have an idea of God, we have something that is a comfortable thought in our mind that maybe we've created, and we'll use that to then read into the scriptures. Say, well, God can't mean that because it goes against what I think or it goes against what I know. We have to shape, continually shape our thoughts on who does God say he is? Who is God? And, and getting an image, an idea of God from the scriptures, not maybe from ourself or from our culture or from our comfortability. You guys following with me? Okay. Because I think when we, when we look through the Bible as a whole, we see that God does what he wants, when he wants, with who he wants. He chose Noah, he chose Abraham, he chose Isaac, he chose Jacob over Esau. And the Bible says he did that before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. God chose Moses, God chose David to be king, who was the smallest and the weakest. God chose the prophets, God chose Mary. I have a hard time believing that Mary was sitting in her uh, prayer closet or, or praying um, in her morning prayers or nightly prayers. Gosh, God, would you impregnate me by the Holy Spirit so that I could conceive and bear your son? I don't think she would have said a prayer like that based on how she reacts to the angel coming to her. Jesus says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. I could list a lot more scriptures, but I think God's election is clearly shown through the scriptures, so we shouldn't really be surprised when we see it in Paul's letter here. This is some sort of new concept. This is in accordance with what we see in the scriptures. Now, you might be thinking, now, well, what about human responsibility? What about obedience? What about um, our choices that we make? Does that just diminish those, neglect those? No, it doesn't. Because this is one of those theologies, just like a lot of doctrines in the Bible, that is, there's a tension. A tension such as God that is in Jesus is fully human and fully God. Well, is he 50% God and 50% man? No. He's fully God, fully man. That doesn't make sense. It's a tension. How is God three in one? Is he three or is he one? Three in one. Is God sovereign over everything or is he not? Why is there evil in the world? How can God be completely sovereign yet there's still evil that he's not held responsible for? Do we see these kind of tensions that are in there? This is one of those tensions. God elects those for salvation, yet we are fully held responsible for our actions. I think to try to explain it deeper or to make more sense of it in our minds, to go one way or the other, uh, is not what the Bible teaches. We are not being faithful to the text. Are you guys following with me? Does that make sense? <clears throat> this is one of those biblical truths that are seemingly in opposition to something else that the Bible teaches. 
Because when you read or when you, maybe your paradigm is being shifted on, oh man, predestination, I'm predestined. Does that mean I don't have to follow any of God's rules or, you know, like, well, everything's predestined, so just live how I want. No, because Ephesians doesn't end at verses five. There's four other chapters that Paul talks about commands, things that we have to do, how we should live. There is a mystery in this of human responsibility versus divine sovereignty, uh, predestination, election that uh, we have to keep as attention. Um, that honestly, I don't think myself or anyone in this room is going to resolve attention that the church has felt the past 2,000 years. Okay, and I'm, and I'm happy in myself to agree that there are some nuances in God that I'm not going to be able to fully understand. Whatever way we go, whether we're all into predestination, all into human choice, there are errors that, that, that come along with that. I believe that all humanity has a responsibility. I believe that no one is in hell who does not want to be there, who did not choose to separate themselves from God. But I believe ultimately that this topic, this idea of predestination, uh, is not something that should be confusing or divisive or unhelpful, but ultimately should be something that is comforting, that leads us to worship, that gives us a better understanding of the grace of God. And I have four reasons why we should cherish this doctrine of predestination. Number one, I believe it fuels worship and prayer and praise. See, Paul writes there in in Ephesians 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to what? To the praise of his glorious grace. So Paul is writing this to the church in Ephesus and talks about this should be something that we praise God for. Regardless of if we fully understand it, regardless of if if it makes us uncomfortable, we should praise God for this. For the reality that he is in control, that he has chosen us, and that he has sealed us and will see us to completion. God's ultimate purpose in this is not a people, our redemption, our adoption, our blessing, but ultimately the praise of his glorious grace. I think what this means is that if we've been chosen before the foundation of the world, that we owe God everything. There's nothing in us that we can take credit about what we've done or what we deserve. And everything that we've been given from God is a blessing and a gift, and we owe him everything. It leads us to worship because we know that God will never leave us nor forsake us. God doesn't make wrong choices. His election of us was before the foundation of the world. Before there was sin. So meaning our sin is not going to separate us from God. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. God doesn't elect someone and go back, whoops, wrong one. (laughs) Send that one back. Where's the receipt? God doesn't do that. He doesn't change. This should lead us to worship. It should lead to a deep, intimate prayer life with God who loved us before we knew him. It should lead to a passionate praise of God for his goodness, his kindness, his patience toward us, that even when we were enemies of him, when we hated him, he still loved us. Our sin didn't turn him off from us. In fact, he pressed deeper into us. Richard Koken in his uh, 
commentary Ephesians for you, our book Ephesians for you, says it like this. When we arrive in heaven, God will welcome us. And we can imagine him saying, I am so glad to welcome you into my home at last. For I chose to save you for my son before I made the world. I sent my son to die for you on the cross. I arranged history to ensure your birth and steer your life. I brought someone to explain the gospel to you and open your eyes to recognize Jesus as your Savior and Lord. I carried you when you were weak and held on to you when you tried to want to run away. And now, finally, I can welcome you into my home. It is good to see you. I have loved you for such a very long time. That should lead us to praise God, shouldn't it? We are predestined for what? For adoption. Adoptions as son, this, uh, when we read this in our ESV language, when it says adoption as sons, doesn't mean that um, only men are going to be in heaven. It does not mean that women are somehow going to become sons. Uh, what that means is that all those in Christ will become, in a sense, sons as heirs. In Roman times, sons were adopted to carry the family name and inherit property. The son who was adopted no longer had any tie to his biological or natural father. All of his responsibility, his ties, the familiar ties, was now to the new father. Birthrights, inheritance, ownership, all given from the new father. This is what Paul is getting at in talking about us being in Christ. We now are solely gods. We are no longer obligated to our old father, our old master, Satan and sin. We have a new father, a loving father. Number two, I believe when we hold to the doctrine of predestination, we should, it should lead to fueling humility. Because if we hold to this doctrine, we realize there is nothing good in us that was deserving of God's salvation. We are not smarter than anyone else. You're not superior to anyone else. The sole reason you're in Christ is God's grace. Now, in our selfishness, I think that can rub us the wrong way. We don't like that. We want to be somehow um, credited, are responsible, are responsible. That means, in a sense, that all, a lot of the control and power that we thought we had is not ours, actually. But this, I think, leads to great humility. Because I believe the more you press into this teaching and you sink into it, the more humble you become when you realize the depths of your sin and the riches of God's grace. I was thinking about this this week of, because uh, I kind of grew up thinking that I was primarily responsible for my salvation. It was my choice and I was the one, you know, I was smarter, I was better. That's what I really believed. So kind of coming un under the doctrine of this and, and studying scripture really kind of uh, shook my paradigm. It really crumbled my theology. It really kind of, that Copernicum revolution, you know, the, everything wasn't around me anymore. But who ultimately do we want responsible for our salvation? I think we're really honest about that. Who ultimately do we want responsible? I'm a really fickle person. I don't know about you guys. And I don't make the best choice for myself all the time. I'm not even the best Lord of my life, Right? If I can use another illustration with Addison, um, I was giving her a bath a couple weeks ago and somehow she, had, she stood up and she grabbed the soap. 
And I said, Addison, don't hold the soap. You know, uh, this is not child soap. This stuff can sting if it gets in your eyes. Of course, she didn't listen to me. She had hair in her face, and she went back and did this to get the hair out of her face, and soap got in her eye. Now, she had soap in her hands. The soap was in her hand, and she had soapy hands. So I said, don't touch your face. Don't touch your eyes. It's going to make it worse. What would she do? Does this and just starts wailing, right? This gets worse and worse. Who ultimately do we want responsible for? Who ultimately do we want in charge of our life? Responsible for our life. Responsible for salvation. Number three, I think we should cherish the doctrine of election because it fuels holiness. That's what Paul writes in verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holiness and blamelessness is not optional for election. It's the purpose. If we come to the understanding, well, I'm already saved. God's just going to do what he wants. I can kind of live how I want. You're completely skewing the understanding of this or missing uh, the biblical teaching of God's grace and sanctification. Finally, I think that holding to the doctrine of the election will fuel mission. Fuel boldness. Because if we know that ultimately it's up to God, it's not about our eloquence, the words that we say, making sure we just say the right phrase, it's ultimately up to God and that he has people out there that are his. That will lead to great boldness because we don't know who it is, right? The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, if, if everyone who was elect had an E stamped on their forehead, I would just go share the gospel with them. But I don't. So I say that I preach to everyone, knowing that there are those out there who will respond. This should lead to great boldness, great mission, knowing that God is those who are out there and that he uses the proclama- our proclamation of the gospel to save people. So what Paul writes in, in verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. This is another great mystery. God uses our efforts in things that he has ordained. I think it would be true that if God didn't use our evangelism, there would be no point. There would be no point in sharing the gospel. There would no be point in going out. But since he has ordained, he has written, he has planned it, that he would use our efforts, we go. And we do so boldly. We can proclaim Christ to all people, knowing that God has people in this city. We don't get discouraged. We are hopeful, knowing that it will happen. Moving on from predestination, if we look at verse seven now, I think secondly, this big spiritual blessing that Paul is talking about in Christ means that we have been redeemed. All in Christ have been redeemed. And this word redeemed here is talking about full redemption. Uh, It's talking about redemption to the greatest extent, the greatest degree. Some estimate in the Roman times in uh, around uh, about the time that this was written that there is 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slaves that were bought and sold like uh, animals, like furniture, like something you would sell on Craigslist. This idea of slavery, uh, redemption would be fresh and they would know what, what Paul is talking about because you could be redeemed if someone bought you and released you, paid for you and, and set you free. 
And this is what Christ does for us. He sets us free, free from the slavery of sin and shame. Paul writes that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. All of our sins have been forgiven. This grace that he's given us, he's, Paul writes, lavished on us. It means to shower, to provide abundantly. Just love the language that he uses. We have the forgiveness of our sins, which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom, making known to us the mystery of his will. The word mystery here refers to God's revelation of something that had been known as, maybe not known as clearly, something that was hidden, alluded to, or maybe vague, that God has now made clear in Christ. And we see what the mystery is that has been made known. God is uniting all things in Christ. All things are being united in Christ. A plan for the fullness of time. Literally, that means when the time was ripe. (laughs) Things in heaven and things on earth. When Jesus came, when he was born, when he lived, when he died, something new happened. The kingdom came. This fullness of time, it was kind of inaugurated. So that now, even now, Christ is working all things, reconciling to himself, unifying to himself, that will be completed at a future date. But we are now in this kind of in-between time of Christ is unifying all things to himself. I think practically what this means as a church who is placing their identity in Christ, who is believing this, is that we should be marked by extreme unity. How should a church that is living with its identity in Christ be characterized? By unity. Therefore, divisiveness, gossip, slander, malice has no room in the church. Finally, number three, I think a big blessing that Paul is getting at here, being in Christ, is that all in Christ are sealed. Been chosen, been redeemed, and we have been sealed. Paul writes in verse 11, in him, referring to Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that you, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. You even see here that that Paul has a very God-centered theology. When Paul is talking about why does God do things? How are things being worked out? It's all according to his will, to the praise of his glory. We repeat that multiple times throughout this passage. But again, we see that we have obtained an inheritance. We've already received it. And because God has predetermined to have you, he is working out everything in your life and in everything according to his plan. He has given us the Holy Spirit, our guide, our comforter, our helper, our power, who is our promise, our guarantee. Paul uses this language of seal, which is marked or owned or protected by God. We've given the the Holy Spirit to us 
which is a promise of what's to come. Now, there's a lot more I think we could talk about. We could go verse by verse, jump into each sentence and dive deeper into what it means. But I think there's a couple application points from this passage that I think we can live out of this reality. With this understanding of the passage, how then should we live? What are some practical things that we can do today that would come out of the principles, the ideas, the theologies, the the doctrines that Paul has set forth in this passage? Being in Christ, being blessed in Christ, being redeemed in Christ, being sealed in Christ, being chosen in Christ. I think the biggest one is that in Christ, our spiritual blessings should impact our earthly realities. And our earthly blessings should impact the spiritual realities. Does that make sense? In Christ, our spiritual blessings should impact our earthly realities, and our earthly blessings should impact the spiritual realities. Meaning, those in Christ strive to have the reality of heavenly blessings impact their earthly realm now, presently, and simultaneously strive to use their earthly blessings to impact the spiritual realms. We use whatever physical blessing we have to bless others to show the realities of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Does that make sense? And I think the more that we come to understand this reality, the more that we come to understand what it means to be in Christ, the more that it will kind of ooze and pour out of our life. So practically what we can do this week Number one, bless someone in your community. Preferably not someone in this church, because hopefully uh, we know, we hopefully have a taste of what it means to have spiritual blessings in Christ. So don't hear this as, you know, when Will ends the last song, Steve turns around and gives five bucks to Nathan and says, here you go, Nathan, God's blessings. Although I'm sure Nathan would enjoy that. Bless someone in your community this week. Take them to lunch. Provide them a gift card to a restaurant. Uh, I don't know. Buy them a coffee. Do, Do something. Bless them. And do so praying that they ask you why. Do we have this mentality in us, this striving, this longing that we want to be a blessing? That if by God's grace or by God's will, he would remove me from my job or he would remove me from my neighborhood, that people around me would miss me because I was a blessing. Or, if we're honest, do we think we're more of a burden? I think hopefully by God's grace, we should be seeking to become more and more of blessings, right? Burdens is always thinking about me, you're whining, you're complaining, you're very self-centered. People come around, you come around people and they're like, oh, here comes Carrie. That guy's a drag. <laughs> Some practical ways that we can be a blessing in our workplace. Do we know the needs of our coworkers? Are we encouraging them? 
and treat them uh, for no apparent reason. Maybe don't do this on a week after their birthday or don't do this on a week of their anniversary or they receive some, some sort of promotion so you bless them. Do this like randomly. Like now would be a great time to bring your neighbor Christmas cookies, right? Why are you doing this? It's not Christmas. Well, I wanted to share with you the feeling of, of being blessed by this, this cookie. It points to something deeper. Christ has given me every blessing. I'm rich in Christ. I know Christ. I'm in Christ. I love being in Christ, and I want to share that with this small thing. Practice blessing this week. Secondly, something that we can be doing in application of this is practice praising God. Uh, if you have time this week, write out this passage in a journal. Type it out on a computer. Get familiar with this, this language that Paul uses. Maybe write it in your own words or write out a prayer like this. Practice praising God. Finally, number three, have regular conversations about evidences of God's grace in your life. If you're married, regularly describe this with your spouse. Develop a, a, a posture, a, a habit of thankfulness. If you have kids, teach them the blessings that are found in Christ. Show them that ultimately all blessings have come from Christ and not from uh, the things of this world. What we do every week at the Mountain Church is we, we try to practice this through something that's called communion where we praise God through coming to the table, we thank him for what he has done. And hopefully it is a reminder every week to drive this reality, blessings in Christ, deeper home. That we have been redeemed by the blood of God and by the body of Christ being broken on the cross. In fact, we even say those words to each other to remind us. You come forward and you take the cracker and you hear the words of the gospel, Christ's body given for you. You dip it in the cup and you hear the words of the gospel, Christ's blood shed for you to remind them of this reality. So like we talked about from the beginning of, of the study, our study through Ephesians, talks about our identity being in Christ. And our greater worship, our greater obedience comes out of the overflow of rooting ourselves in Christ. So I thought in closing that I would just voice that prayer that Paul prays over the church of Ephesus. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, and that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. God, would you open our eyes? Would you open the eyes of our hearts 
to see the immeasurable greatness of who you are, to see the riches that come from being in Christ? And would you cause us to live out of that reality, out of that identity, out of that calling, out of that purpose? Father, I pray through the songs that we sing, through the words that are spoken at the Mountain Church, that your name would be lifted up. That we would, uh, we would be about Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us understand what this means and how this should affect the way that we live. I pray that as a community, as gospel communities, as we gather in closer groups together, that we would encourage one another, that we would equip one another, that we would comfort one another, that we would challenge and rebuke one another if we are not living out of this reality of being in Christ. I pray that this passage is one that we continually come back to 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 shape our thoughts, to encourage us, to fuel praise of God, to fuel our prayer life. I pray that as we think and sink deeper into these truths that it would fuel us to be humble people who don't have a feeling of superiority, a feeling of self-righteousness to those around us that those around us would look at us and see a humility, honesty in the midst of failures and struggles, yet a clinging to the grace of God. I ask that you would make us a bold people in mission, that we wouldn't be scared or timid, but that the, the power of, of boldness, the spirit of boldness that you have given us would ring out, would flesh itself out as we make much of you, unashamed, And finally, I pray, Father, that you would use our efforts this week as we seek to be a blessing, as we seek to bless those around us as you have blessed us in Christ, that it would lead to conversations, that it might lead to someone uh, wanting to be in Christ, that we would get to share what the spiritual blessings come from being in Christ. Father, we know that it is your will, it's your uh, word, it's your spirit that moves and works, and we ask that you would somehow use our efforts to create worshipers of you so that you might get glory. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Like I said before, every week we come to the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, the table is now open. Uh, please come at your own pace and use this as a time to reflect on being in Christ, on thanking God for coming to die for your sins and and anticipating a soon return uh, when the time in this world that is will end and the, and the time on uh, the world that will to come will begin and we will be with Christ in paradise forever.